Welcome to the Catering Feed, the Catering Growth Podcast, a show about growing your catering business and restaurant industry trends, powered by Easy Cater. Hi, Catering Feed listeners. This is your host, Genevieve Babineau, and I'm here today with Corey Manaconi. How you doing, Corey? I'm doing well. How are you? Corey is the CEO and co-founder of Zool, and we are in New York City with him, and we're so excited to hear about their incredible ghost kitchen. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for uh, for having me. It's an honor. You have a really great story about your time in the industry, and this is a family affair for you. So I would love if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about your background. So uh, I grew up in northern Colorado uh, with a family that, that owned and operated uh, IHOPs. My, my father actually worked his way up from being a line cook legit, legitimately to owning his own, his own restaurant. And so outside of eating more pancakes than I probably care to admit, uh, my earliest memories are, are mopping floors and uh, bussing tables at, at an IHOP. Uh, fast forward to 2015, I was fortunate uh, enough to be the first employee at a little known startup here at the time called Relay Delivery. My first day, I think we did 50 deliveries across, you know, call it a half a dozen restaurants. Um, and I had the opportunity to help curate and develop the optimal delivery playbook in New York City, which it certainly is the country's largest delivery market, certainly top three globally as well. And uh, in doing so, uh, got to know near every fast, casual, and QSR brand in this town and really began to learn uh, just how big this behavioral shift was happening amongst consumers. It's the fact that restaurants were never built with intent of supporting off-premise dining, um, which is why now you walk into any fast, casual, you know, restaurant here in town, and chances are you have to swim through a sea of bike couriers to get to the front to order your salad or sandwich, etc. Uh, so the thought process was, you know, why don't we band together the heaviest hitting brands? Thoughtfully and design uh, uh, a space that truly optimizes for delivery. I love how visceral uh, this career is for you because I can imagine to watch your parents go through this, to have spent that time in the industry yourself, to be pounding the pavement doing these deliveries. Not only have you experienced this transformation as a consumer, but you've really lived it with your family. You know, this is a, this is a tough industry. Um, you know, you just you look at the landlord-tenant relationship. It's it's atrocious. I, I think you know no one gets into the restaurant industry um, because they're good at logistics. <laughs> Right, which is effectively what delivery is. I think this industry is ripe for disruption, but not by way of technology. I think we'll get there. Um, I think uh, disruption is going to happen on an infrastructure standpoint, which I know sounds kind of crazy, but again, the restaurants were never built with intent of supporting those off-premise dining. So, uh, you know, you look at the current infrastructure, the front of house is typically 80%, right? It's the maitre d', it's the plates, it's the tables, it's the chairs, and the back of house is 20%. And at Zool, we flip that on its head, where 80% of our physical space is back of house, their kitchens, their four walls, they're with kitchen equipment and the labor. And that 20% uh, front of house is optimized for the dispatch center. So we actually act as the liaison between the brands and the couriers. Another way we're being a partner for the brands where uh, we control the ebb and the flow and the, the, you know, the experience that the couriers have so that truly at the end of the day, the brands can focus on doing what they do best, which is cook their product and Zool partners and effectively does everything else. What are the other elements that really draw a brand to the concept of participating in a ghost kitchen? 
Yeah, I think we just de-risk the heck out of the, the <laughs> yeah. opportunity for them, right? I think in this town alone, looking at some some statistics that are out there, uh, to get a, a restaurant off the ground, you're looking at a minimum of 1.5 to $2 million. Um, that's, you know, the hard cost. That's the, the upfront, you know, licensing and permitting and, you know, pulling in a gas line that's adequate and dealing with Con Ed. I think uh, it's, it's a very challenging, while doable, it's a challenging aspect of, of, of the industry here in New York City. Um, we do that all for you, right? We're the ones that are calling Con Ed and we're the ones that are calling, um, you know, the, the, the GC to ensure that the, the plumbing and the, the, the walls are in the right place. Uh, and we effectively just allow you to thoughtfully, you know, we'll help you thoughtfully design your, your kitchen. Um, and then you staff it, bring your food in, and again, just do what, what you did best. So I think having an operational partner from that standpoint and somebody that really takes the unsexy part of the job, if you will, it just takes a, a lot off the operator's plate. And again, just allows them to, to focus more solely on, on the product and ensuring that the experience for the consumers is top notch. And now they're trying to operate a line of their business out of a space that's actually built with the intention of of that business, which I think, you know, is a, a really crucial thing when you're trying to see immense success in one area. Um, what are ways that people are exposing their brand to a new customer base through Ghost Kitchens? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think, you know, you look at the third party aggregators or platforms, they've done an incredible job, um, ultimately being what they are. And those are marketing platforms, right? They've got tons of consumers uh, that ultimately allow, you know, their platform to offer the opportunity for consumers to see the brands. And uh, it's it's crazy to think, but a brand can be successful just getting on those, paying them as much as you can physically pay them. Um, but then there's also, you know, additional uh, ancillary benefits, you know, uh, or marketing you can do by way of Instagram, Facebook, you know, the, uh, you can look at the platforms or the, the apps that a lot of millennials and Gen Z's are using on a daily basis. And if you can pay them for an ad, you likely should be doing it. Um, you know, but th that's typically how people are marketing to their, to the consumers. Are there folks who maybe are testing out a new market or interested in, in seeing if they can expand their market? But as you were saying, a full brick and mortar is a pretty big risky investment. Do you see people using ghost kitchens as a way to kind of do a test run of a certain area or a market? Yeah, yes yes, and no. I think when we went into this uh, this, this first location, we thought that the, the primary use case was going to be the uh, uh, the opportunity to garner new market share without spending that one point five to two million dollar brick and mortar build out. However, as we went through filling our first location, which we were incredibly fortunate to do fairly quickly. Uh, all of a sudden, everyone was solving for something different, whether it was a delivery appendage because their location, literally a baseball throw away, uh, was at capacity and it was impeding on the retail business. Or it was uh, another catering appendage because they knew downtown uh, was requesting a ton of catering business, which catering's great margins, <laughs> right? But then also, you know, there is a little bit of R&D, right? And, and allowing that flexibility and the autonomy to say, hey, we've got an incredible brand, but we also know that 
there might be some underserved cuisines in this given neighborhood. So why don't we have Genevieve's wings, right? <laughs> um, because we know there's a lot of requests out there. So allowing that kind of nimble and R&D and, hey, all of a sudden, you know, uh, we started making grilled cheeses and it took off. I yeah. do make a great grilled cheese. There I'll we tell go. You. <laughs> we, we got a kitchen for you. The fact that you've lived a lot of these roles and you've firsthand seen uh, how much change and disruption is going on, it was really interesting hearing you talk about that infrastructure shift versus just the focus on technology, which you hear a lot of buzz about. So what are some of those key elements of those infrastructure shifts? So I, I never felt lower as a, as a human being uh, while doing deliveries. And I, I truly realized that the couriers are the bottom of the barrel. But if you look at the entire delivery ecosystem, they're kind of the most important. Crucial component. Yeah, yeah. They, they get the food from A to B, uh, and uh, we need them to do it as quickly as possible. So um, I think we had an incredible opportunity to not only optimize for uh, delivery from a logistics standpoint, but from a human experience as well. So when you walk into our first location, you'll see uh, just a, something as simple as a bench for these guys to like take a load off and, and feel safe and while they wait for their order, if, if they have to wait for their order, um, to coffee, water, and tea, right? We have got complimentary beverages for these guys. Uh, but then we also built what we think is New York City's largest charging port, um, which sounds kind of trivial, but at the end of the day- No, uh, you need a charge phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, the, their phone is truly their, their lifeline or their artery. I mean, if their phone is not dead, they cannot receive orders, which ultimately means they can't make money. So what can we do to support and curate a better experience? Because at the end of the day, all these couriers, you know, we all know about the gig economy, the 1099, you know, they have to opt into a job, which is why Uber drivers have to accept picking up somebody, right? If, if a company is to tell them that to do something, that makes them a W-2 employee. So how do we entice them to come because ultimately if they come because we provide a better experience for them, then they ultimately will uh, come quicker, but then also deliver much quicker, which ultimately means better service for the brands and the careers or the consumers, excuse me, as well. And so those two pain points, both trying to address a lot of physical capacity conversations, but then also this delivery component and the people involved in it and how are you managing this whole new workforce that in some ways, sometimes they work for you, self-delivery, or you're outsourcing this and there's a lot of lack of control there. Totally. Uh, and so it's it's really interesting how Ghost Kitchens are addressing these two pretty major concerns in the off-prem world right now. Um, operational differences and, and concerns are also always a huge thing. I had a, a mentor who used to say, at the end of the day, it all comes down to execution. Totally. So what are the key operational differences between a ghost kitchen and a brick and mortar? So uh, not to you know sound like a broken record here, but I think ghost kitchens offer the opportunity to allow you to, to solely focus on doing what you do best. So if, if you see our space, um, we, we man the dispatch center. So we, we act as a liaison between the brands and the couriers. So if somebody comes in and says, I'm here for Genevieve's order, there's a Zool staff member uh, who's handing off that product. We also have delivery expos who are uh, folks that are running up and down our corridor, grabbing the finished product outside of said kitchens uh, and then handing it off to the dispatch center. And then we've got two th very thoughtfully placed dishwashing bays where we actually have Zool's porters cleaning their, their equipment for them, right? So we control the ebb and the flow and optimized experience, uh, but then ultimately, you know, uh, allow these brands to uh, further mitigate a bit of their labor overhead. 
I think when you, you truly peel back the the onions of the the space or, or the industry in, in itself, uh, real estate, rising cost of real estate is is it makes it incredibly abrasive. But then also the labor market is it makes it a bit challenging for for brands. So are ghost kitchens able to aggregate staff across multiple brands and use the, the economies of scale of scale and, and efficiency gains um, to truly benefit the the bottom line P and L. When leaders have the ability to actually build a space out intentionally for catering and, and takeout and delivery, what? how do you see brands addressing this opportunity and what are those different decisions they're making to have it be a highly functional off-prem kitchen? Um, yeah, I think, you know, my advice to, to an operator who uh, is looking to get into, you know, opening a, a, a brand in a ghost kitchen space is, is figuring out how to maximize for efficiency. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Founder uh, about Ray Kroc and, and, uh, and McDonald's, but there's a fascinating scene where the, the two founders of McDonald's legitimately uh, uh, outlined on a basketball court with Chuck what their kitchen was going to look like. And they literally practiced down to their foot to turn in a 45-degree angle to get to one port, uh, side of the kitchen and, and elsewhere. And I think that led to incredible efficiency gains, and that's why you could get a burger in under a minute there, which ultimately catapulted them to two McDonald's, three McDonald's. And you have that opportunity in a ghost kitchen. You can take, a, a whether it's a galley style or a bit more of a box, and you can thoughtfully put an outlet in, in, a, in a certain position or optimize for under the hood with full ansel coverage. Um, and I think being uh, a, a bit more thoughtful on where stuff goes to optimize for efficiencies, it allows you to then uh, affect other lines of the, the P&L, right? If you put together your kitchen where instead of needing three staff members, uh, you only need two because of the design, you know, we can all assume what that does to the bottom line moving forward. What about branding? I mean, when you're, it's a shift from brick and mortar to ghost kitchen, you think traditionally in a restaurant, every single view has branding opportunities and advertising and stanchion signs and menus and POP and the uniforms are, are promoting the brand totally. versus now at the ghost kitchen, it's really stripped down to what you need for operational execution sure. and branding starts to shift outside the four walls. So how are leaders thinking differently about the way they brand to the customer? Yeah, no, great. Great question. So I think you're you're still marketing to the customer, but it's just in different ways. Whether it's the packaging um, to what you actually put the physical product in, or uh, the bag that the product is is ultimately delivered in. Um, but it, you're looking ultimately at less overarching things you need to focus on, right? Less distractions. Yeah, it seems. exactly. Yeah. No more tablecloths and you know, <laughs> cutlery. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, but at the end of the day. Um, now there's an opportunity to keep other things in mind too, such as sustainability and uh, down to the packaging or, or the, the product uh, uh, or not even potentially including cutlery because most people at home have cutlery already, right? Um, so I think it's just those thoughtful, thoughtfully designed last mile pieces that uh, you can kind of shift your core focus from the stuff that's in-house to, to that last mile um, which is a, a captivating opportunity. If, yeah, if those things it. still tell a branding story, even though they're not within your four walls. There are so many topics that you hear just bubbling up to every in every single industry conversation at every conference, yeah. every panel we go to, every article that you read. And Ghost Kitchens is just one of those topics right now. I feel like the past year has just been kind of the year of the Ghost Kitchen in some ways. People seem 
excited by it. They at times can seem a little nervous about it. You get some of the dramatic articles that are like, in a world with ghost kitchens, you know, what do you think the greater industry perception is? And and how do you address some of those either concerns or interest in it? Yeah, I think when, when you take a step back, delivery as it stands today is still kind of a necessary evil. Right? If you're not online, I think Ordermark CEO and founder uh, Alex Cantor was quoted saying, if you're not online, you might as well not exist from a delivery standpoint in the mm-hmm. restaurant industry. And uh, at the end of the day, it's it's still a, a very expensive part of the business that it's tough to make work. There's a lot of fine tuning. You can make it work, but there's you know, some some uh, plug and play there that, that needs to be done. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think also naturally humans are afraid of change. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, folks don't get into the restaurant industry because they're good at logistics. Um, and I think f- trying to solve for that and partnering with the right folks and, and optimizing for it um, can be challenging and daunting. So this lets you get back to focusing on a really great product exactly. and experience. Exactly. All right, Corey, one last opportunity to really impress on all of our listeners. If there is a leader out there who's thinking about partnering with a ghost kitchen and thinks there could be opportunity for their brand, what would your final piece of advice or insight be for them? Yeah, I think, you know, in any business, you always want to, I'm going to use a hockey reference here, but you always kind of want to skate to where the puck's going. And I think you look at consumer eating habits right now, it's trending towards off-premise, whether it's delivery or, or it's B2B catering. Um, you know, it's, it, there's no denying that that is the emerging part of the business. And some would argue that even, you know, catering is some of the most profitable because you don't need a brick and mortar, um, but you're capturing these two, three, four, five hundred dollar orders and maybe three or four of them a day. Um, so uh, try to be as more most uh, as, as forward thinking as you can, uh, and and just uh, you know see what the the data suggests um, because delivery certainly is the future on a B two C standpoint, but I think. Um, the, the B2B side of the business as well offers just a, a great opportunity to build a very healthy P&L. And a lot of the truth is in the data that when you look at the industry and where the most growth is, how do you set yourself up for success to make sure that your team, your operators are growing that component of the business in a space that was made for them to win? Bingo. Corey, it has been a pleasure. Your excitement for this industry really exudes across the the table. So I hope all of our listeners can hear that. And we're so grateful that you took the time in a very busy time for you to come chat with us. Yes, no, it uh, was an absolute honor. and, And thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. All right, Catering Feed listeners, thanks so much for joining this episode. Feel free to check out more insights from great leaders like Corey on the Lunch Rush blog. We'd love to hear your insight on what you want to hear about next. So go ahead and comment on the podcast. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed hearing our episode today, you are going to love our Catering Growth Conference, Cater Up. Join us in San Diego, April 22nd to 24th to learn from experts and connect with your peers in the catering industry. Go to caterup2020.com to register. Thanks for listening to The Catering Feed, powered by Easy Cater.